Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is one of my very favorite conversation partners, physician and professor Jeffrey Rediger, author of Cured, the life-changing science of spontaneous healing. We explore what seems to be required to heal, including the journey back to our authentic or true self. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. If you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. I think there is so much depth to that. And that's why it's so important that we help people begin asking, is there a message that my body is trying to give me about this illness? Many times there's different ways to language this for different situations, but is there a way in which a person is spending so much time taking care of others or responding to the perceived needs of others instead of taking up space in the world, doing the things that put a light in your own eyes, the things that create authentic well-being. It took me years to begin understanding the deeper sense of what's true here. But I think the truth is, sometimes the illness is really a message that this inauthentic self that we have become, that needs to die. And if we can let that death occur, which can be messy and painful and scary, But if we can let that occur and let a more authentic version of who we really are be born, boy, I'll tell you, sometimes that's astonishing sometimes what then becomes possible. So says Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, physician, psychiatrist, author, and speaker who joins us today to discuss his best-selling book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. Dr. Rediger, the medical director of McLean and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, has spent over 15 years studying spontaneous healing, exploring and analyzing unexplained, miraculous recoveries in cases conventional medicine dismissed as hopeless. A leading voice challenging current healthcare systems and treatment models, and cured, Dr. Rediger explains the science behind these miracles, digging into the root causes of illness and revealing how to create an environment that sets the stage for healing that beats the odds. There is a part of us that knows how to heal, Dr. Rediger tells us, pushing us to explore how we can tap into the curative, regenerative potential of our own bodies, rather than engaging in the endless search for external healing solutions. Our minds exert 
deep control over our physical reality, his research shows, making mental healing as important as, and a tool for, physical healing. Dr. Rettiger's work creates a new paradigm of healing from physical illness for those with life-altering diagnoses and for those of us who simply want to live healthier lives. Okay, let's get to our conversation. You can really tell when people have poured all of their wisdom and and I count I count cured as one of those sort of great, great books that I've read. And mm. it's such a gift and so important, I think. Full snaps to well, you. Um, thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know, obviously cured is about so much, but one of its central thrums is there is this part of us that knows how to heal or this is possible right right yep tapping into something outside of medicine yes and yet culturally we're trained rightly and wrongly to look out there for the solutions to what's happening in here that's right and that can take us Mm -hmm. farther away from sort of the blueprint for health yes There's a lot of pieces to this, I believe, because the West evolved for very specific historical reasons in the direction of looking for external solutions, whether it's an external medication, for example, or technology in medicine. But in religion, it's it's a similar thing. It's it's looking to an external priest or religious figure or pastor, or even Christ is an external figure who's going to save the person who has no goodness at all left within them. In the West, we began to emphasize original sin and to minimize the primary role of everyone in is created in the image of God, and that's the primary reality. But some of the Western approaches began to emphasize that the whole thing of original sin instead of image of God, and that ends up then with the person having no good inside of them, looking for and needing an external Christ to save them, which is a really different understanding than, for example, Eastern Christianity, which is what Christianity was for the first 1,200 years, was Eastern, not not the Western mm-hmm. variant that then grew out of that. So there's a lot to that. Yeah. But it is a systemic belief, whether people are secular or maybe more right. more affiliated with a, this Western ideology of, mm-hmm. oh, I'm born a sinner, born depraved, born bad, I must be redeemed, the body must be overcome, God, yeah. heaven, it's all outside of me, yes. rather than, oh, it is with, I, I am living it, the goodness is inside of me. That's and I right. can tap that at any right. point. And so when you take us to this and I know that you worked on this book for so long, but take us to the sea, this moment of like watching these literally miracles, the, or that's how we would, what we would call them, but really more, you could almost call it like a miracle of homeostasis, right? Of like the body healing itself or coming back into balance. Right. Not magic. Take us Not to magic. that moment. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of steps along the way. I mean, I, I did this research since 2003, and it was a very halting journey for me, a very slow learning process, because it it ended up working such a deep transformation in my own beliefs at a very deep level in such a way that ended up 
having many of my beliefs as a physician, as a psychiatrist, and even as a theologian turned upside down. And this changed the way I view the world, the way I work with patients that changed me professionally and personally. So it was a very deep, slow learning. Medical school is a very powerful socialization process. And so one comes out of that medical training after being kind of broken down and built back up into a very specific worldview that is powerful in its own right, but also very limiting in terms of seeing the forest for the trees. One of the experiences that I did not put in Cured, but that came up a lot in hearing people describe their healings, it was fascinating to me that it would be not uncommon for the person. And, and this happened usually with women, but women would be telling me their stories and they would say something like, I started having these dreams with the blue that's in Mother Mary's robes, for example. And or they would begin to pay attention to the theophanies of Mary that one sees reported around the world, whether at Lourdes or in Spain or Mexico or other places. And I began to wonder if what was happening in the healing of these physical illnesses, if there's a rebalancing that seemed to take place in a person's psyche as something more balanced between the masculine and the feminine aspects of themselves was achieving homeostasis, like mm -hmm. you say, or a new kind of balance. And, and it was like other aspects of, of themselves came into more full presence in their lives as well as these healings occurred. And so I began to believe sometimes their careers would shift in a way that they wanted to have more time for more creative endeavors rather than a life that had been more unilinear in its focus. And sometimes perhaps participating in the, in the more masculine kind of world that I think is reinforced in our society a lot. But this blue or some aspect of the feminine came up a lot in, in people's stories as they were talking about their healings. So that comes to mind just with mm. you telling me a little bit about your own interests and work. That's beautiful. And that doesn't surprise me. And mm -hmm. um, I've certainly, the one, the visitations that I have felt are, have been from Mother Mary in my own life, where I mm -hmm. have conversations with her in my dreams, where mm -hmm. she plays with my hair. So I very much relate. In fact, <laughs> she sort of mid-pandemic had come to me and told me that I had to stop drinking. And in that, in that night, I was like, felt like I was going to vomit. I hadn't, I wasn't drunk or hungover, but I was like yeah. having those feelings yeah. and she struck a bargain with me that was effectively like, you really cannot drink and yeah. you're, you're, you've got to be more conscious of your energy. And I wasn't teetering towards alcoholism right. or anything, but it was right. an interesting intervention from mother Mary in my dreams. And I'm sure people listening think I'm crazy, but hopefully you've listened to me long enough to know that I'm not that nuts. <laughs> well, I'm a psychiatrist. I can tell you you're not crazy. <laughs> I'm qualified to determine that. Thank you. No, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I do think that there's, and, and I, what I also loved about Cured is you talk about sort of the rates of these, and obviously they're rare, but they're not that rare. They're just no way to study them. So they're typically dismissed as 
you know, wacky situations rather than mined for wisdom. And But I love that you were like, I'm going to mine them for wisdom. And from that, I will create a map to yeah. healing. And then right. they don't abide, right? Like that's all, this is deeply personal work for each person. Yeah. There's no and, map. And they're, yeah, they're not that rare. It's just that we, we ignore them and minimize them when they occur. We kind of put them in this pigeonhole in our minds and, and nurses around the nurse station will talk late at night sometimes about these things about remember that case of spontaneous submission or whatever and this bizarre story, but it's so outside of our normal way of thinking. And since we are taught that these things are flukes with no medical or scientific value, we don't explore them. And we call them spontaneous remission. If you're on the scientific side, if you're on the spiritual or religious side, you call this a miracle or spiritual healing. But the word spontaneous in this use means without cause. And that's such an unscientific way of thinking about this. Because, <laughs> I mean, how can you be more unscientific? Everything has a cause. We just weren't asking the questions. <laughs> and every time a person reports this to their doctor, the good doctors say, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing, it's working. But they right. don't have curiosity about what's going on. And so these, these actually are not as rare as we think. It's just that they're ignored and they, they're not part of our worldview. And so we ignore them or minimize them. And I have yet to give a talk where somebody doesn't come up to me afterwards and say, you need to talk to this patient or you need to talk to my aunt or you need to talk to this friend. These things do occur more often than we realize. Yeah, no, certainly. But as you said, they don't really fit in our paradigm. And in part, right. it's like there is no toolbox to guarantee this outcome. Although right. I do appreciate that and we'll get into this, but that you did distill some some commonalities, yeah. which in a way, like maybe I can sum it up as like radical change yeah. in people's life for the mm -hmm. most part, like a death of identity so a new identity can emerge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is probably too simple of a statement to say, and I could be wrong, but it appears to me whether the healing occurs in a few hours or in... 10 years, the pattern looks similar to me, even though the length of time can be very different. So it's my belief or my hypothesis that as we continue to investigate these remarkable healings, there's so much for us to glean from these things. And whether it occurs again through a meditation experience or a spiritual experience um, at a retreat or on one's own or in psychotherapy, our illnesses are much more, they have messages that we should be paying attention to. And once we begin to understand these patterns and what healing is really about at the deepest levels, we have a doorway into beginning to really change our lives in a way that gives us a life and, and an understanding of our value that we just never mm. realized was a possibility. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. 
I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention, when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com P-T-T. And one of the things that I think is really important is in in the book is that you, for example, spent time his past right with John of God, or you went down to under try to see what's happening with John of God. And so, for people who aren't familiar with John of God, he was this healer who promised to cure people of all of their maladies, and there were some people who were cured, but he in of himself was somewhat of a nefarious character, and lots of bad things happening there. I mean, he's a, he's like this Western idea of a guru of like, give me right. all of your sovereignty and yes. I'll make you whole, which is sort of antithetical to the work that we're talking about here. Right. But, yeah. But you did, but there was something that was happening there, which I thought was interesting that you distilled. Can you take us through that experience? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated experience, right? Because I could document that objective medical evidence of accurate diagnosis had occurred in a number of cases and genuine healings of illnesses that in the West we know are typically incurable, they occurred. And yet, there were, this is back in 2003, there were these soft reports of possible sexual abuse. I tried really hard to see if anyone, to, I tried to verify these stories. And I think probably what was going on was that nobody felt comfortable coming out with their story at that point. So it was very complicated. I pulled out a, a few films and TV shows because I was concerned about sending people down or people being encouraged to go down and perhaps being at their most vulnerable state and then being sexually assaulted. And so it's a very complicated thing. And it took many years before reports started coming out that were more verifiable. Now, there's a lot of different ways to walk around this. I, I think that healing comes from within us. It's not really coming from a healer so much. So there's that whole dialectic of where healing comes from. It's not really about the healer. 
healers can be characters. I, I think that we all are wounded healers, whether it's a healer or a physician or a loved one. And it's what's that Leonard Cohen saying, our cracks are how the light gets in. And so it's, it's important to not dismiss or pathologize or feel bad about our cracks. Our cracks are what cause us to need other people in our lives and to know we can't do it alone or by ourselves. But healers are human beings too. And I think in the case of John of God, this is a guy who had a second grade education, doesn't know how to read or write, he says. And then at age 15, he wakes up out of a trance in a culture that's very different than ours. And he was told that a bunch of people had been healed while he was in this trance. And so then in a very patriarchal culture, he was from a young age given a massive amount of power that was unopposed and not held to account. And so he has spent many decades, he's now in his 70s, I believe, many decades with no one who held him to account for anything. And I think we all know that unlimited power is dangerous for any human being. And in his case, you know, a second grade education, given a massive amount of power, this whole town builds up uh, all these businesses and hotels and restaurants and a whole cottage industry around his healings and ended up, I think, being willing to turn to turn a blind eye. And Brazil is a very different culture than the United States. And the United States has a lot of problems ourselves, but Brazil is a place where women have even less rights than they do in the United States. I have a friend, she's worked at the World Bank for years and lives in Brazil. And she told me with pride that Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, has is has more divorces than any major city in the world. And she was very proud of that because she's viewed that as a sign that women were getting their rights and starting to stand up for themselves and not allow abuse any longer. But she talked about the women's police force and how they try to combat the patriarchal nature of things there. But still, there's a lot of challenges there. And I think John of God was part of a patriarchal structure where power was unopposed and he got away with a lot of things and there was no one to stand up to him and say, you can't do this. And I think also, I think back to how when we graduate here in the United States from medical school, we come out of a developmental moratorium. We watch our friends buying houses, buying you know nice cars, boats, all those kinds of things, having relationships, going out with friends on the weekends. In med school, you don't do a lot of those things. And you go through college in a pretty much a developmental moratorium as well. And you come out kind of stunted developmentally and then have to hopefully begin catching up after you're done with all that training. Well, think about if you're a if you are 15 and you go into a trance and you wake up and then you have all this power, but you've never had a lot of education, you don't have anyone to mentor you into healthy patterns and boundaries and all that. He probably wasn't given the kind of environment that allowed him to develop healthy boundaries and to know how to work with people in the ways that were respectful of others. And yeah. And so it was easy for him to really get out of bounds and start things that he was calling normal were very un abnormal and ended up doing a lot of damage to people and people didn't have a voice. Yeah. No. And I, and I've certainly seen this sort of across my career that people can become very confused and mm -hmm. they might be channeling or bringing something down and then they equate themselves with that energy. They right. sort of grant themselves a divinity or right. superiority instead of recognizing that they're actually just a channel and that they need to be right. really clean about that 
And right. so you get into a lot of distortions. And again, I think it can happen across industries. It's a natural thing to be like, oh, look, I'm good at this. I'm going to control you, even if my intentions are right. right. Yeah. So I think it's a normal it's a normal occurrence, unfortunately. But that yeah. his, his distortion and damaging aside, I, I feel like in Cured, you were witnessing people sort of even taking the time, right? And meditating and being away from their old life. Yes. And that maybe that was granting them enough space and distance to transform. Yeah. I mean, they were moving out of a lot of their stressors many times going into a different culture, into a very peaceful environment with healthy food. I'm sure that for many people, stress hormones begin to subside in that more relaxed environment and living in a bubble in some ways away from the toxic relationships or toxic work environments that were contributing to or playing a major role in their illnesses, whether it's cancer or autoimmune illness or, or something else. And do you think that, and, and maybe this is more true for women, but I was reading Gabor Mate's new book, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but he was talking about how so many women weren't like weren't recovering from heart surgery, like had much worse mortality rates. And they realized that it's because these women, instead of fo anyone focusing on their healing, they were immediately put back in a caretaking role. Yes. And so do you think it's also that women sort of yeah. actually being in a situation where everyone's focused on th them and taking yeah. care of them? Yeah, I, I think what I see, as having spent many years working in both a medical hospital and a psychiatric hospital, it's the same situation in both that I think in our culture, women are taught to be caretakers and they often, so often are taking care of everyone except for themselves. And Gaber Mate's statement is brilliant. If you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. I think there is so much depth to that. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important that we help people begin asking, is there a message that my body is trying to give me about this illness? Many times there's different ways to language this for different situations, but is there a way in which a person is spending so much time taking care of others or responding to the perceived needs of others instead of taking up space in the world, doing the things that put a light in your own eyes, the things that create authentic well-being. It took me years to begin understanding the deeper sense of what's true here. But I think the truth is sometimes the illness is really a message that this inauthentic self that we have become, that needs to die. And mm. if we can let that death occur, which can be messy and painful and scary, but if we can let that occur and let a more authentic version of who we really are be born, well, I'll tell you, sometimes it's, that's astonishing sometimes what then becomes possible. Yeah. You write in such a beautiful uh, section of the book. You write, one way to look at it is that there is a kind of figurative death of the false self. Many survivors describe it in these terms and in fact tell me repeatedly that their illnesses were their greatest gifts because they liberated their true selves. By dying, they found life. By facing the worst that could happen and moving through it, they excised the quote-unquote disease of fear that binds all of us and then realized that unexpectedly they were free to live. Yes. Yeah, I think it's such a huge deal. And I started, once you start to see that, you start to see it in so many different places. It's shocking to me, for example, how often when a person is diagnosed with 
cancer and told that they have 12 months to live, for example, they'll be terrified at one level and horrified, but it's, it's so much more common than I would have ever expected that the person also feels like, wow, if I only have 12 months to live, then I don't have to go to law school anymore just because dad's telling me I should, or I don't have to take over the family business, or I don't have to do this or that. And so to begin letting go of these, these activities and these things that have come to define our lives, when they're not even part of who we really are meant to be, the deepest level. And these things begin to grind some deep part of us down when we are overcome with a living an inauthentic life. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. You have this great quote in her too from Bernard Critaz, the founder of the Death Cafe movement. Mm -hmm. If you put all the intensity of yourself in this moment, then you live, which is, is so beautiful. And I you used in the book, and I know it's sort of a complicated example because... Cortez, you know, conquered and killed a lot of indigenous people. But you talk about this metaphor of Cortez telling his, I guess, troops to burn the boats, right? That there was no retreating. They were to survive. They had to move forward. And how apt that is as a metaphor for so many of us. (laughs) Like, you can't go back. That doesn't work for you, right? That backslide, though, there's a lull there. 
Yeah. I mean, letting go of the old life and the inauthentic self is a painful journey. I, and how many times do we stop ourselves from letting that journey actually happen? Because it's messy, right? If we change, then those people in our lives who we care about, if we start to begin to recognize our value and set different boundaries, then the people we love have to either change with us or we have to let go of those relationships. And yeah. boy, these are messy real world situations. And so to have the courage to change our lives in that way is, is real courage. And sometimes I think many times we put it off until it gets so painful that we feel like we have to do it. Yeah. Or we leave ourselves an out, right? There's always that boat where we're mm -hmm. like, well, we can just retreat or get back with our right. ex, or if this is too painful and uncomfortable, right. I can... I can go home or mm -hmm. back to what I've known. I think it's such an important metaphor, though, for what, what you're talking about or what a lot of these people were talking about, which is a complete yeah. transformation or shedding, which is also why it looks so different, why there is no real map, because what's true for me is not true for you. That's right. Yep. Completely true. Yeah. Boy, this brings to mind a story. You know, some, it's, some stories just really stick in your head. And this one woman tells, told me about her recovery from breast cancer and, and how in the process of healing, she began to change from being this demure, kind, self-effacing woman into someone who was more tell it like it really is, more saucy, more racy, more assertive. And, you know, I think that was an important shift for her. It, it was more about stepping into her own personhood, into her true self as a person and as a woman, being willing to take up space in the world, less needing to just be responsive to the needs of others. And I think that shift was probably really critical to the healing that she ended up experiencing with her cancer. Yeah. And it will always defy studying. I do think that this list, you know, that you do have is important or interesting. It's the conditions associated with poor survival outcomes, All right. inflexibility associated with low self-esteem or fixed worldview, skepticism about self-help techniques or limited ability to apply them. Other activities seem more immediately appealing. Meaning was habitually sought outside the individual from some external source, yep. strong contrary views about the validity of spiritual ideas. And then on the flip side, conditions associated with longer survival, strong will to live, actual changes in habits of thought and activity, relaxation practices, meditation, mental imaging, cognitive monitoring, and becoming involved in the search for meaning in one's life. Yep. That's the recipe. And <laughs> yeah. And it's also work, right? It's, 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 not, it's not just not a silver bullet. Right? It's not just taking a medication. It's, it's not just showing up to psychotherapy and chatting for an hour. It's actually, it's not just talking about change. It's about actually making change. And that's hard for any of us. <laughs> and do you think that the change in your experience is more that are there like addictive patterns like that we're all sort of succumb to where it's like, but I like eating terribly or I, you know, I'm addicted to my, or I'm codependent with my spouse. Is it more that that keeps us bound or is it actually a fear of being 
what we know we are. Well, let's see if I answer that in a way that is getting at what you're asking. I think one of the spiritual lessons at the core of everything is that we all have to, at some point, come up against ourselves and realize that something in us needs to be let go. And so we have to die in order to live. We have to be last in order to be first. We have to go down in order to go up. There's all these paradoxes. But I think to wake up to the dignity and value of who we really are and to give up or eliminate the false beliefs that prevent us from experiencing that is a huge piece of what this is at the deepest level. I think there's something in the deeper self or in the deeper soul that doesn't rest until it experiences unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different ways I think that we are, we long for that. And we also block ourselves from experiencing that Mm -hmm. and to begin identifying and removing those blocks so that we can experience unconditional love from within us in a way that allows us to then enjoy people rather than try to get something under the table from them that's not theirs to give. I mean, these kinds of dynamics are a really big deal in these healings I study. And so when you talk about codependence, yeah, what is it, where, where is it that we get this experience of our dignity and our value in a way that really nurtures a deep part of us, but gets it from within and doesn't try to get it in a codependent way from someone else in a way that's not theirs to give. Is that a little bit what we're, what you're trying to get at here? Yeah. I mean, I think so much of it is, and I think this is very difficult work maybe for women in particular, mm-hmm. but the statement of needs and then going out to rightfully get those needs met either from self or from others, but having an expectancy that those needs are valid and right. real. And those right. in turn are, you know, boundaries. Right. But so often I think we, subsume our needs or deny that we even have them, see them as needy, right? That's right. Yeah. And then I've come to believe that we can't really understand a lot of these stories without understanding what it means to heal from the different traumas that are are a big part of human life, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or a developmental trauma from just the drip, drip, drip of growing up in a home where the love was conditional or where you really take in the bullying of other kids in a way that causes one to end up feeling like they're not good enough or that there's something defective and have those false beliefs that that drip constantly in a person's life and really impacts the way one experiences their own value and possibilities and the way that affects work and relationships. These end up being really big deals that need attention sometimes on these healing paths. No. And there's obviously the cultural trauma. It's a lot, but I think it's, it's incumbent on all of us to heal this on the micro to the macro and to really peel this onion. But Going to that idea of love, I have, I've never, so the Barbara Fredrickson and her vagal toning, can you talk Mm. to us about that? And this, Mm. what she calls the upward spiral of the heart as you increase your vagal tone. Yeah. So Barbara Fredrickson is doing some really brilliant research and she's at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, I believe, and just doing great work on helping us understand not only what's right about who we are as human beings, but also what it means to activate the vagus nerve. And so many of us live in chronic fight or flight. I'm sorry to say that more of us live with this sustained 
release of stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine. And we know on the basis of both laboratory research and clinical data that that when we are bathing the brilliant cells of our immune system and our body in this mostly constant drip of stress hormones, we know that the body and the immune cells begin to malfunction. The immune cells begin to misfire. They begin to attack the body instead of the pathogen, for example, and they get confused about what's the pathogen and what's the body they're sworn to protect. And so the stress hormones cause that confusion to occur. Barbara Fredrickson's work around the vagus nerve is about the healing parasympathetic response. And that's the vagus nerve. That's the central highway of the parasympathetic response that runs through the center part of our body and connects with all our major organs. And it's activated by deep relaxation, but it's also activated by love. And so when I smile at you or when our eyes light up in, as we're talking about really fascinating material and making a genuine connection, that sparkle in our eyes, that smile, that's all the vagus nerve operating. And so when we make genuine eye contact, when we have a genuine smile and really connect with somebody, that's activating the parasympathetic response. That's activating the vagus nerve. And that is uh, what puts us in the direction of activating a whole different cascade of neurochemicals, which then bathe the immune cells and our body in a very different chemical environment than the fight, flight, or freeze chemistry. So for example, when you and I smile and make genuine contact and it's authentic, then whether it's one minute with a stranger or an hour with a loved one or somebody else, that cascade of oxytocin, which is the love molecule or dopamine, the pleasure pathway or serotonin, the antidepressant molecule, these kinds of neurochemicals have a very different response for the body. And the body just loves being bathed in that kind of chemistry. The immune cells and the other cells in our body begin to wake up. They begin to function properly. Healing can occur. And that chemical environment is so different than the fight, flight, or freeze of the stress response, the fight that your body with this parasympathetic pathways opened up heals and the body functions correctly, including the immune cells. So it's not just about nutrition. It's also about getting this chemical cascade going, which is what our body loves. It's such great advice too, because obviously the book is about people who touched bottom, right? And it feels incumbent on our collective survival that many of us start swimming up rather than feeling like we need to go all the way down in order to find our authentic selves or truly turn this around. Where do you advise that people, obviously they should read your book. I recommend your book all the time, but where would you advise someone who's like, it's probably all of us, right? Who feels like they're on shaly, loose soil here and slipping. Where would you advise people to start? Well, I think different things work for different people. In regards to the four pillars that I write about and cured, for me, the easiest changes to begin making were the ones that I began to understand soonest in this 18-year-long trajectory, (laughs) which was to begin changing my nutrition. That's a big topic because there's so much misinformation about nutrition, the relationship between industry and all the processed foods and how that interacts with the academics who are paid to sign off on certain results 
or to or to design kind certain kinds of studies and the interaction of both of those with the government and lobbyists and recommendations by the FDA all that's very complicated and not completely pure science. It's also spin science with a big yeah. business interest. And so there's so much confusion about what genuine nutrition is that most doctors and unfortunately even nutritionists have a lot of misunderstanding. But by documenting the recoveries of these people who had such amazing recoveries in the face of such odds, I was able to begin understanding what genuine nutrition density is. And that was the easiest place for me to start because that's a big change that a lot of people begin with while they're then slowly and more slowly figuring out the deeper changes. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints and they do a beautiful and speedy job making them the perfect place for holiday gifts as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame. Whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I think it's called Triumph of Doubt. I'm trying to think there's some great books about just general public health and lobbying and which are are fantastic and terrifying and clarifying reads. I think for people, it's just, again, you want to be, you want to have faith in these systems, unfortunately. And uh, it's tough. So, all right. Well, if I can just make one comment about that, I think we're in a very exciting and perilous time because what's great is our institutions are being exposed as being inadequate 
for containing the human spirit with who we now are becoming. So it's great that these enlightenment or post-enlightenment based structures are being exposed as somewhat corrupt or faulty or inadequate for who we are now. But it's difficult because now we don't know how to trust. <laughs> you can't, right. trust, can't trust politicians. You can't trust the media. You can't trust religious figures. So it's okay. great that all this stuff's coming out of the closet. And we're seeing what's, <laughs> what's definitely a shadow side. It leaves us with the question of who can you trust? You can't trust the healer. You can't trust the priest. You can't trust all these different people. So we need to begin constructing more reliable pathways that... I believe, have to do with continued democratization of the world at every level where we begin to find what's right and great within each person that's starting to trust each person and the capacities that lie latent within us at a whole new level. And we have a lot of work to do there yet. Yeah, no, but it's true. It comes back to that idea of sovereignty and strong foundation and self. And Mm -hmm. and then you engage with the world and you Mm -hmm. obviously you want to come at it from a place of optimism and love Mm -hmm. yet you also need discernment and to Mm -hmm. decide is this resonant for me is this dissonant Mm -hmm. for me like what do i need and recognizing that you can still state your need i mean this is impossible work and i struggle with this so i'm saying it as Mm -hmm. though it's easy but you can state your needs without abandoning other people but it's this dance and and finding our, our way as you said you know, this idea of evolution, like, can we evolve to keep up with our progress, our technological right. process and mm-hmm. progress and starting to, to better match the two. So mm-hmm. since the book came out, I mean, it's been a minute, but not that long, but I'm assuming just even going out and talking about it, you're hearing tons of stories. What's next for you? Will you write another book or are you frontline COVID doctoring or what's yeah. what? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, COVID's been a huge deal. I was the place where I was chief of behavioral medicine at the medical center for years. We were a hotspot for COVID, so that was a lot of intense work there. And I've given that up now, and so I'm, I've kept my medical director position at a branch of McLean Hospital. So I'm still doing that, and I'm still at Harvard. I'm now in discussions about starting a center here and trying to just more effectively take on the ways in which modern medicine and even our culture are brilliant in some ways, but also partially broken and trying to find a way that empowers people to take charge of their health and well-being, because I think that's the future. Doctors should no longer be the expert on a person's mind or body. I think a coach is good, but we need to be helping people find their own intuition, helping people find their own pathways to a more authentic life and a new level of well-being where we listen to the illness and ask questions of it and interrogate it, uh, but don't think that health or well-being are simply about being compliant with medical doctor or recommendations. And so trying to find a voice and a path around that is challenging in our current medical industry for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Doctors who are very well-intentioned are not only powerfully socialized into a particular way of being, but there's, they're hemmed in by regulatory requirements. They're hemmed in by what insurance pays for and doesn't pay for. They're hemmed in by licensing requirements. They're hemmed in by malpractice laws. So there's a lot of things that keep medicine from democratizing the way 
many other institutions in the world are slowly moving. Yeah. And I would say, or how it seems to me too, is that, and this is where it gets very, it's like when you want to tease out the behavior rather than the person, Right. there are so many loving, considerate, mm-hmm. compassionate doctors who are in a system that is not very loving or compassionate. And so right. also figuring out who are burnt out, certainly post COVID and, and frustrated mm-hmm. and can't deliver the care that they want. So it's also hard for us mm-hmm. to hold, you know, doctors as distinct from right. the system and understand that the system needs to evolve. Right. That's right. The system hems in a lot of forces that, and, and that also prevents doctors from being able to think about the forest for the trees. There's so many demands on their time. There's a lot of pressures on, you know, pleasing several different masters, whether it's the insurance companies or the administrators. So there's a, there's a lot of forces that, that keep everyone hemmed in and prevents people from getting the care that they deserve. Yeah. I'm hopeful. I feel like in this new, in this age of disruption and technology that we're starting to find the solutions that we need, even if they come from outside. It's starting to occur. As Dr. Rediger explains, and I'm quoting from his book here, when we dig deep into these cases of remission that doctors haven't been able to explain or understand, we see that there is a powerful link between our very identities and our immune systems. Perhaps what ultimately determines the health of the soil of your body is how well you know who you really are at the most authentic level beneath appearances, shoulds, perceived expectations, and all the masks and roles that you assume for yourself and the world. Because of the ripple effects that stem from this one deep central aspect of identity flow through everything, it determines the way you think, the way you feel, the way you see yourself, whether you make time for yourself or not. Whether you move your body and go outdoors and breathe deeply or not. Whether you prioritize putting excellent food in your body or not. How and when and how often the stress response clicks on in your body and the precise levels of hormones that tumble out and the way that your specific cells respond to that wash of hormones. I love this book here. I think it should be required reading regardless of whether you or anyone you know is facing a diagnosis because I think it is in some ways a map back to health, but really only because it's a map in some ways back to ourselves. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.